0: A slightly unusual bonus episode this week that was recorded in front of a live audience. Now, is it possible to change the world simply by changing where you buy your coffee? This was just one of many questions discussed at Alex Chisnell's Entrepreneurs' Summit in Bournemouth recently. It brought together a group of inspirational speakers, including Jamal Azell, founder of the award-winning social enterprise Change, Please. If you've not yet come across Change, Please coffee, you soon will. It's stocked in Sainsbury's nationwide, and it is Virgin Train's beverage of choice. If you live in London, Cambridge, Birmingham, Coventry, Manchester, or Edinburgh, you might have spotted its distinctive grey carts with a bright yellow circle on the side. What you might not know is that all the baristas at Change Please have experienced periods of homelessness, but with the right training and support, they're able to make sleeping rough thing of the past. Perhaps the most inspirational aspect to Jamal's work is his conviction that businesses with a genuine social conscience will be leading the way, commercially and morally, over the next few years. It's a point he makes powerfully, first in his presentation and then in the conversation I had with him afterwards, live on stage.
1: But what we do is not particularly special. Um, We just do what's right and and what's going to be the norm in the next five years. And I'm convinced that what I'm about to show you represents the future of business in the next five years. But first, I'd just like you to imagine if we could genuinely end global warming, if we could genuinely end homelessness, if we could genuinely provide sustainable employment for people who are autistic, blind and disabled. And imagine if all of that could be down to where organizations changing where they buy their products. So hotels like this, organizations like Barclays, PwC, just changing what products we sell them, you sell them as entrepreneurs. If they could change those products through their supply chains and it makes a difference to society, that's what I believe is going to represent the future of business in the next five years. Um, Essentially what we're doing is just finding people who uh, are homeless and rough sleeping and giving them an opportunity to lift themselves out of homelessness and not be dependent on the government for handouts. So essentially you might walk past somebody in the streets and they will um, ask you for a handout donation. What we're doing is empowering people to come out of homelessness through a job first model and not through a housing first model. It's trying to find out what are the core reasons why somebody became homeless in the first place, whether they're a victim of domestic abuse, whether they're a military veteran, ex-offender, they went through bereavement, whatever the the situation is. And in most instances, it isn't caused by drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol are a way of people coping with being on the streets. So what we're doing is trying to find out why someone got to that point in the first place and then use coffee as a platform to rebuild confidence, rebuild focus, and give them a direction in their lives, so that essentially they can use that to uh, to lift themselves out of the problem that they're in. And it's not just coffee; it can be absolutely anything. And what kind of excites me about social business is that so many people I hear who are trying to be entrepreneurs talk about how oh, every idea is being thought about, every app's being developed, but. Honestly, if you start going through existing businesses and think about every existing business, how that can be um, looked at from a social perspective, there's a whole new market out there that's completely untapped for entrepreneurs. And that's what's really exciting for me about the social enterprise space. So this is what we do from, and that, the way we support people, we get referrals from large charities like Crisis, Centre Points, Big Issues. Um, those individuals will then do a month's selection uh, with us and the big issue, where we receive a weekly report on that person's timekeeping, their reliability, customer interaction, and their money management. Um, the people that make it through are then paid a living wage, which in London is around £21,500 a year. Um, we offer housing in 10 days, and we're the only organisation in Europe to offer people who are um, homeless a job and housing in that quicker time, um, and a bank account. And the, probably the most important part of what we offer is therapy support, because you can give a job and a house, which you might think is enough, but actually therapy is and mental health support is probably the key area of what we support our staff with. And then a new job after six months with some of our corporate partners. It's not just the coffee, so it's not just the social impact, but we also are environmentally and socially sustainable as well. So we purchase coffee from a farm in Peru that supports women who are victims of domestic abuse, another farm in Tanzania that supports landmine victims. The coffee then comes to London and it's roasted by people that are homeless. Um, and we sell the coffee now about 46 sites across the country. Um, and we only use cups that are made out of plants, not plastic, 100% biodegradable. And we convert our waste coffee grounds into biofuel. So we've tried to think about the full supply chain of where our beans come from. And we've now taken it one step further because even that model of direct trade isn't sustainable enough. Um, because farmers in that model were only receiving, and this is crazy to say this, but one fifteenth of a penny of a £2.50 cup of coffee. So we looked at really how much farmers are genuinely earning, who are providing pretty much the majority of the drink that we all drink on a daily basis. Um, And we were like, this is crazy. So we've now started using blockchain to really track the full supply journey from the bean all the way to the cup and where the coffee comes from. So these are real examples of farmers that we buy coffee from, and this helps to reduce fraud, corruption, um, and also uh, track the full pollution trail from where the bean comes from across seas to our cups that we drink. And we're now putting iPads on some of our sites so you can see where that particular coffee's come from and who has benefited along the full supply chain. No one else is doing this. Unilever are trying to do it, but no one else is doing this yet. So it's, it's, what our message is, is that not all products are equal. You might buy a coffee, you might buy water or AV equipment or whatever the case may be. It might look the same, it might function the same, but what happens in the background and the people that are being supported along that journey is really the power of social business. And um, we may have been a little bit generous about how much a high street change pay, how much tax they pay, but um, let's say it's equal. Um, you know, 54% of that cup goes to directly to helping people off the streets. The, the challenge around social business is that and anyone here that's looking to set one up. um, And if you're not, then really think about it. Hopefully I'll persuade you in the next 10 minutes. But one of the biggest challenges for us is that organisations feel, and consumers feel actually, that there's gonna be a compromise to your product if you're doing all this social good and you're helping farmers and you're helping people who are homeless to your product. Um, And you can't do everything. And so we have to go a bit OTT on the quality of the product to, to really reassure people that there's no compromise. So we've won five Great Taste Awards for our coffee. We're the only coffee in Sainsbury's that have won a Great Taste Award. And that's just to dispel that myth that there has to be a compromise between um, quality and social impact. Um, The message that I, when I'm speaking to kind of people at procurement level and um, people making decisions who are buying particular products, You know, they start to glaze over, and I'm sure some of you guys are glazing over at the moment, thinking, oh, this is really nice, and it's really good, and isn't it laudable? If I hear the word laudable one more time, I'm going to go crazy. Um, But genuinely, we did research on why 120 of our top B2B customers from UBS's Virgin Trains buy our products, and 52% of them came back saying it's because of a commercial benefit to their organisation. So we supply government, we're closer supplying Buckingham Palace, for example. The benefit to organisations like InterService buying our coffee is because it helps them to win business. It helps Virgin Trains to sell more coffee. Their sales of coffee have increased by 15% year on year just because they're now buying coffee from us. And they've now got a message to talk about. It's now not come to Coach D, to because the cafe's open it's now come come to coach d and buy coffee because it's going to help xyz and it gives a natural reason to promote a product which they didn't have before Um, and it's been so popular they sell ninety two thousand cups of coffee a week it's been so popular they've had to get a new social media manager to manage the daily tweets and instagram messages because it's genuinely engaged consumers and their passengers to feel that they're a doing good just by going on virgin trains but also Um, you know you're sitting there on a long train journey and you feel great that you're doing you're you're using a Virgin train Um, they spent half a million pounds on adverts across tube networks across London um, because they really wanted to promote the story and it directly benefited sales as well we supply large organisations like Halifax on their banks And it's great that they're doing that, but it also directly drives people into their stores. This is one of their flagship sites in London, and it helps to get people into their stores, sell more mortgages, increase, develop the brand of Halifax. So this isn't just about doing good and doing a nice thing and having a pat on the back. This is directly increasing revenue for our our direct clients. Um, This is another site we're just opening with them on Cannon Street. We now supply the Coffee and Virgin Atlantic globally on every plane in the skies um, and every lounge globally as well. And their mission wasn't just to change coffee, but it was to have the best coffee available in the air. They directly linked the Net Promoter Score of how their customers feel with sales of future um, people buying Virgin Atlantic tickets, which is really interesting for me. So all these things are great, but what's actually happening is Virgin Atlantic are massive in the experience that their passengers are leaving when they leave that plane. So typically when you would, you would leave a Virgin Atlantic plane, the message is someone saying, if you've got any spare change when leaving the plane, please put, someone's gonna walk through the cabin, please put it in a bag. No one's got spare change. We all spend it at duty free, or we all use cards now. So your overriding feeling when leaving is a sense of guilt. Now the message is, you might not have known this, but whilst flying Virgin Atlantic, you've been drinking Change Please Coffee, which has gone to help, and then a video of Claire, Michael, Julian. Francis, who are homeless in LA, in New York, in Seattle, in, in Manchester, in London. And that then turns that experience into a feeling of happiness that you've been flying um, Virgin Atlantic. So that changes directly the narrative and that, and that customer experience, which they believe to drive sales. So again, it's not just about doing good, it's about making money for, the, for our clients at the same time. UBS, this is, um, we were just told that the sale, they've got a building in London which has got 7,000 people. Um, it's, uh, this coffee bar is sales have increased by 29%. It's busier than two other coffee bars in that building combined. Um, this is um, uh, it used to be a Costa store in AstraZeneca's offices, and their sales have increased by 19% year on year just by changing to change please. Um, it's increased every product category apart from espresso. I don't know why. But I'm going to dig in with my team and find out why. Um, and you just see this from their staff. You know, they're all engaged and proud to be working for AstraZeneca because they're buying Change coffee. You know, it just it helps that halo effect, staff engagement, attracting new millennials and Gen Zs, which um, study after study have shown that they work for organisations that they believe match their vision, purpose and values. And this is one easy way of doing it. it doesn't cost them any more money in it directly. Um, improves their image to their to the external world. We supply coffee to WeWork um, nationwide, um, and um, you know, a lot of their members, when they're doing tours, come to Change Peace Coffee Bar and they use it as a selling point. Partnerships with T-T- Transport for London, it's great for Sidi Khan, it's great for TFL, um, but the reality behind it, they've got loads of empty kiosks where they couldn't sell because they, they don't have any water or drainage and we use 30% less water because uh, we use special machines that come from Switzerland. So it helps them to get rid of sites which um, weren't being used, but also they've had an increase in say, of, of people that are homeless on buses by 169%, so it's a win-win for all parties. And we've um, really expanded globally. So we've just opened in Perth um, about six weeks ago, we we're opening Sydney in February, Milan and Paris in December, Brussels in February as well, Ireland next month. And we just come back from meeting the mayor's office in New York so wherever we go this whole message around social business is exactly the same it's about driving commercial revenue for our clients doing good socially but also engaging existing employees attracting new employees who are Gen Z's and Millennials but also creating a halo effect around their brand and this is why um, social enterprises absolutely stormed in the last couple of years and and UK is the envy of social business. This is our site that we just opened in Perth. And we won world's most uh, disruptive brand, 100 most disruptive brands in 2017. Previous years were companies like Uber and Airbnb. He won the Queen's Award for Enterprise, which was great. Went to Buckingham Palace a few months ago, which was nice. Um, we were Richard Branson's startup of the year, last year in the Sunday Times. And he's, you know, he, he was clear in the article that the reason he sees social business in the next four or five years as if organisations are not buying socially, if they're not talking about their social mission, then they will be at a competitive disadvantage. And now they're lucky enough to be at a competitive advantage. So companies that are keeping up and being first to market by buying social products, if any of you guys are looking to be entrepreneurs or are entrepreneurs, then this will be the future currency of how organisations trade and how they attract new talent. And I genuinely advise looking at how you can can focus your business around social enterprise because this is where people like Sir Richard are believing the market's going. And it isn't small either. Um, It contributes uh, 60 billion to the UK economy. That's 3% of the UK's GDP. That's three times more than the agricultural economy contributes to the UK GDP. Um, and it employs um, 2 million people which is 5% of the UK's employment so it isn't this nice little laudable thing it will be the future of a business and it will be how currencies trade and um, organisations trade so I just want to finish on an example this was Adan um, this is a Adan um, this was a picture of him when he first joined us um, Adan used to be an executive chef in New York um, he studied at the Kemp's College which is basically the Harvard of culinary colleges in the US it's the best place you can study um, he moved to the UK with his family in twenty. 20- 2009, um, and for an amazing job. And unfortunately, the beginning of 2010, he lost his wife and his daughter in an accident, um, became severely depressed, um, he lost his job, he became homeless, ended up homeless around Borough Market. Um, and at the beginning of 2010, uh, so end of 2010, he was walking past Blackfriars Bridge. Um, it was a freezing cold night, um, icy waters in the Thames, and he heard a scream from behind him, and he looked around and the lady had jumped into the Thames trying to commit suicide. Um, he turned around, he, he took off his clothes when everyone else was looking over the Thames, not knowing what to do. People were just calling 999. He took off his clothes, he jumped in, in, into the Thames and he saved her life. Um, he caught hypothermia, um, but it made every national and international major publication. Ian Thorpe, or Michael Thorpe, whichever was a swimmer, uh, came over to the UK, gave him a medal. Um, and he also won the George Award for bravery from the Queen, which is the highest civilian award that anyone can get. And also the high commendation from Prince Charles of Buckingham Palace. And that hadn't been given to anybody in 43 years and they gave it to him. Um, And that was in 2011, 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. He was still homeless. And he said to me that as soon as he sat back out on those streets when all that press died down people saw him in exactly the same way they would see anyone else that's homeless as a drug addict as having mental health issues of be having alcohol dependencies and the truth of it was he's literally a national hero but we wouldn't see that because we just saw the labels that we put on all people that are homeless and that's the kind of people that we're trying to find so that's what we do it for we're 100% not <coughs> for profit and um a Dan's just a representation of the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of people that we support. And um, this isn't just a nice to-do. this is genuinely I'm going to keep saying that where the future of business is going. And if we want to have a competitive advantage in the businesses that you're running, then I would really think about um, setting it up as a social enterprise or, or being as social as you possibly can. Um, thank you..
0: Amazing and, and so humbling. I think we all as entrepreneurs think, you know, we've got really busy lives just running our little businesses. I know mean, a number of people in the room with Bournemouth based businesses, and then you go and pull off something like that, which on the surface looks so simple. It's like, okay, big issue, sell magazines, you sell coffee, and there you are around the world, not just selling stuff, but also training people, putting them, you know, housing them, all that kind of stuff. Your hat's off to you. It's a phenomenal uh, what you've pulled off and what you've achieved. And, and I love the fact of how you then link it, not just to what you're doing, but to, to social business in general which we'll come back to. So I've written another 150 questions. Get ready. it's gonna be dark before you get to leave today. Um, but first of all, I just wanna go back into to how it started because I understand you were actually on a sabbatical in Vietnam. You found a little cafe and it was called The, the silence, uh, Silent Cafe, it was The Silent Tea House. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that triggered the idea? And did it trigger this idea? Yeah,
1: so I'm gonna do the fast sorry, um, version of this. So um, I was a commodity broker for my sins um, before the age 29, between the ages of 26 and 29, had a bit of a mid or a third life crisis um, uh, and started to realise actually a lot of people were winning and a lot of people were losing along that journey. Um, My partner went to Vietnam, I joined her on her gap year um, and we were on this 18 hour bus journey um, uh, going up to the centre of Vietnam and this American traveller jumped onto the bus I pretended to be asleep because so I was just exhausted and wanted to chat to him. We got chatting in the end, um, and he, I told him I wasn't happy with my job. He said, if you're not happy with your job, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, um, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy on the world? Um, have you left the world in a better place, and who was going to remember you? And I just remember thinking that, you know, I was pretty much a bad person. Um, uh, if you know, that bus crashed there and then, then the only people that would really give a crap would be my parents, my partner, um, my bank manager, and probably my insurance broker, because he had to fill out the forms. Like, it, I had no impact on the world at all. It, my existence would just vanish and that was it, it was kind of game over. And my biggest fear is regret, you know, I don't want to look back when I'm 90 and think about. Um, you know all the things I potentially could have done I wanted to achieve, and then it's too late. Um, without sounding too cheesy, so that stuck with me. And then a couple of weeks later, went to this silent tea house in a place called Hoi An in the centre of Vietnam. And this was a tea house run by deaf and mute ladies who uh, had no other opportunities in that town. Came together, created this amazing space, probably half the size of this room, full of American, Japanese, German tourists, and it was a silent. With a Japanese guard, a Japanese um, fountain in the middle and that's all you could hear and you ordered your tea through like sign language you said thank you and all that kind of stuff and it just I left and I said right I'm going to set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London and then I kind of realised um, I don't like tea I hate Clapham and I don't like silence so that isn't gonna <laughs> like start to be the start of a good business and, and I had the idea I used to rent my properties inadvertently to people that were homeless and Came back to London and saw a homeless person with a sign saying change please at, at Paddington and then had the idea and kind of went from there.
0: Amazing. And, and its, the first concept was more around the roastery, is that right? Old Spike old roastery and, and was it the difficulty in scaling that that made you decide to get the, the kind of more portable vans?
1: Yeah, so it, w- it was originally the change please coffee bars realised that actually to set one up next to a Starbucks would cost us, does cost us about 200, 250,000 each. So you want to, to, to get those vans, each van you can still help about eight people a year, but it only costs us 15,000 pound a van. So it makes made a lot of sense to start that way. We've now really progressed into tube stations and high streets and um, office buildings, but that's how we started. Um, but the roastery, the coffee roastery, was a way of controlling the whole supply chain, so that we're not just buying from an indiscriminate coffee roaster. We're able to buy from origin, help farmers origin, and then be able to control the full journey that that product takes to, to our cups.
0: Okay. And talking about sourcing, did you look at? Uh, I'm going to ask about fair trade. I guess when you mentioned about just how little one fifteenth of a penny of a two pound fifty. What were your thoughts around fair trade coffee and how that kind of fits into the model?
1: So the, we we wanted to be a specialty coffee bar, um, so really high end coffee and fair trade. Just everyone knows that it's not great from a coffee quality perspective, but it's it was the best of a worst case situation um, because it increased the amount farmers were earning by fifteen percent. Now it's like so old like we pay five to six times what fair trade pays directly to farmers and it incentivizes farmers to be able to farm based on the quality of their product as opposed to what the commodity price is indexed at Um, and typically fair trade will we, we sell fair trade coffee so i'm not slagging it off but um typically fair trade will still be less than the production cost for most of those farmers but it was just the best of what they could have aren't previous to anything that is, 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 is exists in modern day. Um, but yeah, we just we just try to do what's the most ethical thing for the farmers. Perfect, no, I agree 100%. I think fair trade is a, is a base that
0: you shouldn't go below, but I think the opportunity to always do be better than that is there, and I would say key to people is to actually ask, isn't it? To ask about where does coffee come from in the places um, that you visit. How important then, uh, as it, it, you've got the sort of two sides, I suppose, you've got the selling the coffee and revenue generating. But even more so, you've got this kind of training, providing accommodation, I don't know whether it's counselling, which is the most important part of it? Can you just talk about what training you offer? From how do you actually get somebody off the streets in the first instance? Yes,
1: yeah, so when we first started, I, you know, you've got this great idea, you leave your job, you're incredibly idealistic. And then um, I was going to people on the streets and just saying, look, you know, what's your background? We can do, we do this, would you like a job? And, and Actually, it just didn't work because you don't know the person's history, you don't know really what their challenges are. You tell them they could potentially be earning £21,000 a year and they'll tell you what you need to hear to get get £21,000 a year. Um, So we then um, started to go directly back to crisis centre points, you know the history of people that that they're supporting so we could filter out people at an early stage that were suitable. But what we learned was we really um, over-delivered on the social impact right at the beginning. Um, at one point we were having like four or five people working on one site when we only needed two Um, that's because we really wanted to deliver that social impact and then we realised for this to be sustainable it has to be built on really strong commercial foundations and that's when we started to really look at um, seeing it as a business as opposed to a social business and that then allowed us to be very profitable which then allowed us to help more people Um, but it has to be um, focused on finance and sustainability and income and, and, and the numbers. And that's what allows you to do, that charity at home model
0: allows you to do the social afterwards. Okay. And you mentioned some of the global cities that you're in. In the UK, are you predominantly in London or you said 46, was it 46 locations or 46 cities? Um, foot
1: lo- loca- uh, locations. So London, Cambridge, Birmingham, um, Coventry, Manchester, Edinburgh and opening in Dublin at the end of the year, that's in the UK.
0: And then... Okay, how do you decide? So, for example, people, you know, we know there's a, a significant homeless problem in Bournemouth. How do you decide which city to go to next?
1: So, it, it, it's a difficult one because if we're focusing on a wholly owned model, so a subsidiary model, then we need to, to kind of have control over that, um, uh, the sites that we open, as opposed to franchising or licensing out that brand. Um, typically, to date, we haven't been that confident to license or, or, or franchise the model. And I think now we're getting to that point. That's really how we're going to have a really deep national um, presence. But until this point, it's been focused around cities that have been really big massive problem of homelessness has a huge demand in coffee a lot of sites we don't pay business rates because we we're not for profit so you know high business rates is a factor that we take into consideration and that tends to be our main focus but in the future we're going to start franchising and when we franchise that means we can just license out the model to a coffee bar in Bournemouth that can do social good and also sell to businesses in the area as well
0: Yeah, I think that's key. I I spend a lot of my time going around the country uh, interviewing people behind the scenes of our food and drink industry, and and I'm always drawn more to the um, the smaller kind of independence and trying to get people to buy local and to know who they buy from. The tricky bit, I guess, with you, because this is brilliant and it kind of feels like you want every single person ordering a coffee in the country to order your coffee and for you to roast the coffee, apart from the fact that I've interviewed a number of really passionate independent coffee roasters. We've got one just up the road from here called Bad Hand, for example, run by a lovely guy called Joel. Because well, you, 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 know, you don't want to put those little independent businesses out. So is it, is it that route? Is it kind of working with these guys to go, you know what? Because presumably rather than controlling this, a little bit like uh, well, Google, they're probably a bad example, but kind of almost making it an open source kind of thing and saying why don't other businesses use that model? Do you think that's the approach? Because we don't want to stop people, I guess, buying local.
1: Exactly. So uh, this is going to sound weird to say, but my dream is that we go out of business You know, yeah. because yeah. we want to have an impact on homelessness. And the way we can do that is by empowering other organizations to almost replicate what we're doing. Then convincing little small businesses who want to have a little bit of a difference, but don't know how to do that, to to buy social or to help one person. And we can give them the model of how to do that then. Or a restaurant, you know, we've got a couple of um, social enterprise restaurants in London that do exactly the same thing. And actually that's a difficult challenge because with coffee, you can see, see the full journey. You can see the coffee being made. The, the you know it being turned into espresso, the milk going into the cup, so that cleanliness issue that you see around homelessness is all visible there. Whereas with the coffee, with, with food being made in the back of house, we do get a lot of stigma and perception around the restaurant space. But specifically for cafes and coffee shops, going back to your question, there's a massive opportunity for, for small independents to kind of replicate and copy what we're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um I would imagine that there must be you know, almost more demand than you can cope with. And when I see you about to launch across cities across the world, I don't know how you do it. Are you at the stage where, you know, can you keep up? Are you still roasting all of your own coffee? And and kind of what's next, I suppose? How are you going to continue that trajectory?
1: Yeah, so from a demand of coffee perspective, um, that's fine. Um, Until you get to a massive massive problem of deforestation of coffee, which is kind of where we're going to get to in the next 10 years. But from a demand perspective for coffee, that's not a problem. From the perspective of training our beneficiaries, that's a challenge because you need to be able to provide exit routes for people to move into new jobs. And if you're not moving people on quick enough because those exit routes aren't there, then it's difficult to get new people to come through. So from a coffee perspective, it's not difficult. From the demand of... Um, people who are homeless wanting to work for us that's not difficult, it's the exit routes so now it's you know, looking at the large corporates that work with large catering companies like Compass, Sodexo Baxter Stories and we work with them to have exit routes but that's the only challenge that we have from a really scale, scalable perspective to get people out into onward employment quick enough.
0: Okay, amazing I've got one last thing, you've got coffee on Virgin trains, you've got coffee on Virgin planes, I heard a little rumour that you're meeting big man Richard himself next week, are you getting one of your carts on Necker Island, is that the, is that the next
1: stage? I doubt a cart it was difficult <laughs> enough to get me on Necker Island but it was, um, the pods I think are going to go on Necker Island so. oh, Excellent, yeah. exciting I'm sorry we haven't got time for questions but uh,
0: brilliant story, round of applause for you for <laughs> the Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.